welcome to a discussion of 10 Rillington Place, the famous murder case that happened in London in the 1940s and the 1950s. My name is Anthony Rotuno. I don't have an official connection to this case, but I've been interested in it for a number of years and I used to live in that area. But I am joined by three, what am I going to say, Rillington Place heavyweights. So if we just go around the table, so to speak, we'll just introduce ourselves first. So we'll go Lindsay, John, Jonathan. So Lindsay, you first. Hi, my name is Lindsay Civita. I'm a true crime historian and I first got into the Christie case when I was quite young, actually, when I was only a teenager. And I used to watch loads of murder mystery programs and documentaries as a kid. And then as I got older, I did more research myself. I worked at Scotland Yard's Crime Museum for five years and actually handled the original Christie exhibits, which made my research even more interesting. Okay. All right, John? Yes, well, I'm John Curnow. I have written an e-book called The Murders, Myths and Reality of Ten Rillington Place, which really came after I did a small website, initially just relating to the location of the old Rillington Place. This was a number of years ago. I had access to the documents in the local library in Kensington and Chelsea, thought I'd spend a day on it. And um, 15 years on, I'm still working on it and don't expect to ever stop, frankly. But yeah, you have the um, main website, I'd say, tenrillingtonplace.co.uk, is that right? Yes, ten-rillington-place.co.uk. Yes, and it started because I thought, well, there's no need for there to be any controversy about where the house was. So at least if someone's got the mouse to get an old map and a new map of the same scale, then at least we can lay that one to rest. But obviously there's a, a great deal more to it than that. And then Jonathan? Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Oates. I'm a historian. I've written 13 true crime books which have been published. And one of them, the important one as far as we're concerned, is titled John Christie, Biography of a Serial Killer. That was published by Pen and Sword in 2012. I've been aware of this case since I was about 10 or 11, and I read a bit about it in a book, in a children's book about crime from the local library of all places. And I suppose I got more interested in it as time went by, and when I discovered that there was more to it than just a simple miscarriage of justice, if that was the case. Okay. So, yeah, we'll just go around again. So just um, tell us again exactly maybe what drew you to the case and what do you think is the fascination? And I'll tell you for me first, as I said, I lived in Labbrook Grove around 2001. I lived there for a few years, just flat sharing. And actually had a friend who was studying criminology and he told me about it. And I, um, I think I got confused with 110 Sharon Cross Road or something. There's, there's another film with a famous address anyway, because I grew up about an hour from London. I used to go up to London with him and he was knocking on doors in uh, what's now Bartle Road because he said oh, I wouldn't see if anyone's still living there but it was already you know I think 60 years on that was the early 2000s and anyway I think the fascination with me was the fact that it was such a tiny house and that all this stuff had gone on how did everyone possibly not know about it that was one of the things and the other one was having this very respectable character Christie and then it all falling apart and him ending up tramping around London for a week there was an audio book by Martin Fido. I mean, have you heard that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, you know, I didn't necessarily, he seemed very certain of the conclusion, that what they call the standard version. But I did, I found it quite compelling, I must say, the way he described it. So um, we'll go the same order. So Lindsay, what, 
what drew you to the case, would you say, and what's the enduring fascination? As I said earlier, I'm like a true crime historian, so, and that started when I was about 12. <laughs> so I was really interested in any sort of serial killers, especially London ones, although I'm not from London originally, but I don't know why I always wanted to live in London, and now I do, and now I'm only a few minutes' walk from Ladbroke Grove and Notting Hill, so I'm actually in the Christie area right now. So that's been quite handy during lockdown. I've been able to sort of walk around the area again and get to know it quite well again. But as a child, it was mainly, I think, the serial killer aspect for me, I'm always fascinated with the psychology behind serial killers and what caused them to kill. And the character of John Christie himself was, I think, for me, the first thing that drew me to it. But as others have said, it's a very complicated case. And I always like things like that and mysteries because it's still not solved in a way. We still really don't know the, the whole truth. Yeah. So for me, I think it's the enduring mystery, the complexities of the case and wanting, like everybody else, to solve some of the, and get some of the answers to some of those complexities. And maybe also for me, the other thing I sort of like doing about history is trying to rewrite the myths that have been written, not just on, on this case, but other cases too. So the fact that there's such long established myths and inaccuracies around the whole case, for me, you know, reading the books and getting to know the truth, and then wanting to share that, I suppose. And then when I worked at the Crime Museum, that was just amazing because from having read books as a kid and a teenager to actually handle the original exhibits is another dimension. And I'm very, I'm really aware that I'm very privileged to have had that. And to see the original Christie exhibits, which have not been on show, but still exist. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating case. Yeah, it's agonising, isn't it? Because you think, of course, if it had happened now with all the forensics and the DNA, I mean, there wouldn't be any mystery, I don't think. You know, but to think that one of the victims, uh, we'll get to it later, probably the most hideous one of all, really, was killed with a tie and the police had the tie and they didn't know whose tie it was and they couldn't work out you know it's it's agonizing anyway john anything else to add what's what's the general fascination of this case would you say well the the fascination or the interest started for me really when i was probably in my teens which was actually quite a long time ago now i remember it clearly driving in the car with my father along the west way which for those who don't know is an elevated bit of road that kind of carves north kensington into two that runs from west into central london and as we drove past he sort of pointed to some old houses and said down there that's where rillington place was terrible murders so terrible that they even had to change the name of the street that seemed quite a, an unusual thing to have happened. And the first thing I did was go and find the, the A to Z, that's the Atlas of London, to see whether indeed that road did exist anymore. And sure enough, it didn't. And that sort of lodged the interest for me to begin. It was a long time before I started doing any more proactive research. But looking backwards, I was born in 1953, and, and that year is actually sort of the epicentre of the whole case. And, it, and I was also born quite near Park Royal, which, as people will know, was where Christie met the second of his known victims. So that kind of reverse interest, it felt as though this was my, my case. This is going to be the one that I'm going to try and get to the bottom of. Okay, and Jonathan? Well, all that, I've been aware of this case for a long time. I haven't been seriously interested in it that long. I mean, in 2005, when I wrote my first true crime book, 
I wrote, I would not touch the Christie case. It was just such a hideous crime yeah. that they couldn't sort of do with it at all. Although it has to be said, I didn't know very much about it. I'd only seen the film and uh, I might not even had read Ludovic Kennedy's book. However, a few years later, I was in Oxbridge, which is close to where I live. And um, I was aware from Kennedy's book that Christie's first, that two of his early crimes in 1924, 1933 were committed or certainly he was sentenced, certainly in Uxbridge. So I thought, well, perhaps I'll just write a little article about these two early crimes, both in, which involved theft of vehicles. And I thought this might be quite a good article for the local history magazine, maybe. So I looked up the local newspaper from the, the local library, and I discovered that the account it gave, and of course it was written at the time of the events, was vastly different to the account given in Ludovic Kennedy, and I think in some other books as well, which I'd read by that time. Mm. I thought, well, you know, if this fairly simple, uncontroversial, petty crimes can be written so incorrectly, what else is wrong? I mean, I already knew that Ludwig Kennedy's book was somewhat suspect and couldn't be taken for gospel. So um, I went down to the National Archives and spent a day looking at just one of the, the files on the case, three great boxfuls of material. I made lots of notes and found lots of information there which I, I hadn't heard of before because I, I hadn't read it in books before. So I assumed no one else had. So I contacted my main publisher and said, are you interested in this as a book? And they said, yes. So um, I got to work and uh, it took me about a couple of years to write the book. I'm, I'm obviously still interested in the case. Excellent. All right. I'm going to go back to you, John, because I, I just want to nail once and for all, where the old Reddington place exactly was. So can I tell you my understanding and then you can fill it in for me. So apparently the, the garage, which is opposite Bartle Road, it's, I don't think it's called the Andrews Garage, but it's in the exact location where the Andrews Garage was. Is that right? Uh, yes, Andrews Garage. Yeah, it is still yeah. there. The original building, it's still visible exactly yeah. where it was. Yeah. If you're in front of Bartle Road, Reddington place would have been just to the left. So you tell us anyway, tell us exactly where it is and where we would find number 10 if we wanted to have a look at it now. Yeah, well, the, when the, the whole site was redeveloped in the 70s, one of the ideas was to obscure where Rillington Place had been as much as possible to obliterate it. And the, the design of the development was such as to make any kind of direct comparison not right. So Bartle Road in the present day doesn't follow the exact line of the old Rillington Place. I mean, it's not hugely far off, but it's, it's not the same road. There's a myth that there's no number 10 in Bartle Road as a kind of mark of respect. Well, there is. It's easy enough to see it. Adjacent to it, there's a little ornamental garden, which people have long said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's where 10 Rillington Place was. And it's kept as a garden, again, as a kind of, you know, sort of mark of respect to the victims. Yes, tribute, exactly. Again, that isn't correct. Speaking to people who, residents of the the new, well, new since the 70s, late 70s building, as they say that the developers said that that garden was where number 10 was because they rather naturally didn't want to blight the value of any particular unit that they were trying to sell. They were commercial developers. And so it was convenient to say that so that no one would think 
you know, I'm the one living in the exact location where all these terrible things happened. In fact, people are the building in St. Andrew's Square directly behind. I go into this in some detail in the book. You can pin it down more or less yeah. to the inch, really. You did. Um, and it, it's at a peculiar angle underneath the existing block. And there are stories about how people have felt unwell and animals haven't thrived in these places, which, you know, I, I'm, my mind isn't closed to that kind of thing. But, you know, really there's nothing that the eye can see in the modern layout that would let you know that that's where the house was. You, you have to know before you go. Is there another myth that in that ceremonial garden there's a bit of the original wool? That's not true, is it, at all? No, the whole site was absolutely cleared. You know, it was pulverised literally down into dust to deter any sort of souvenir hunters or any ghoulish behaviour. So, no, I'm afraid that is a nice idea, but it's, along with a great many others, it just isn't true. Yeah, because there's a video on YouTube of the the houses being demolished, and they they look pretty well demolished in that video, let's say. It's pretty clear, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's sort of somewhere between Bartle Road. But as you said, I mean, there's nothing to distinguish what's there now from what was there before. So there wouldn't be any reason, really, unless you were desperately wanted to stand on the spot, you know? Well, I think... You couldn't. You'd be in in someone's house. In someone's... (laughs) And I think they do get pretty... I mean, the first time I went there as an adult, I ran straight into someone who knew I was there. I was standing on the public highway. He got pretty shirty. And um, I had to sort of stand my ground a bit. But I do understand how exhausting it must get for for people locally. And and just to to round that off, um, Mm. the reason I went into such great detail with it was that somebody else had made a little attempt that they'd got an old map and a new map, but they weren't to the same scale. So just overlaying them led to a different wrong result mm. so as, as i said earlier on i thought well you know there's enough intrigue and mystery about this this doesn't need to remain something to speculate about if someone just sits mm. down and does the job properly it should be possible to ascertain exactly where the house was and i thought well i'll do it i'm, I'm local to the library in kensington i can create a one-page website and that that will be my contribution to history yeah just one final thing on that next to that andrew's garage there is the road ruston mews and i think for many years a lot of people thought that that was Rillington place because Rillington place had been changed to ruston close so yes and i think that that's a private road now isn't it but that's a quite a short street that seems to resemble i don't know perhaps resemble Rillington place not in the condition of the houses but the shape of it perhaps. well yeah similar sort of row of terrace houses when I first went to the location in 1978, I kind of knew I was in the right place for exactly the reason you say, Ruston Mews was there. So I knew that the road on the other side must have been where Ruston Close was, even though it wasn't. But you're quite right, and even people who should know better, authors of books, have said, oh yeah, well, the old Brilliant Place is now Ruston Mews. And, yeah. you know, sure enough, people go and go through the gates there to this day, believing yeah. that they're seeing Brilliant Place, but of course they're not. Absolutely. All right. 
from now it's pretty much a free-for-all so i'm not going to say uh, any of you in particular everyone just chime in so i'm going to say to people who are listening to this who don't know anything about the case it might be we're going to assume some prior knowledge of christie obviously there's a wikipedia page i'm sure there's errors in it <laughs> we don't want to go down that rabbit hole but uh, to give the bare bones what are the significant events of christie's life that we need to know that you think may have turned him into a killer you know none of us are professional psychologists but i'm sure a couple of us at least have got an interest in it so anything you could point to like childhood events for example well christie in his autobiographical writings in 1953 <laughs> He pointed out the fact that as a teenager in Halifax in the 1910s, he had great problems with the opposite sex. And he was known as No Dick Reggie because of his problems with a young woman who told everybody else that he couldn't get it up, as it were. And he said that this caused him real problems in adult life as well great concerns that he wasn't really like other men as regards to women so i think that made him have a hatred towards women but also an inferiority complex towards them as well at the same time he also had an interest in death he recalls when he saw his maternal grandfather david halliday lying dead in the front room when christy was aged 11 he said he felt a peculiar fascination and power maybe of this man who in life had been very much much more powerful than young Christie. but now he was dead it was Christie who had the power and the authority over the corpse as it were mm. and it has been said that during both world wars in which he served from the first as a soldier and second as a policeman he had a fascination in seeing corpses from enemy action so he had this double fascination he had his problems with women who he, he seems to, to, to have mostly hated mm. and also his fascination with death and the two came together in a way a little bit as in the case of Dennis Nelson who also saw his beloved grandfather's corpse in the front room whilst he was a young man so I think those are the two problems that he identified personally mm. of course we have no one who can say these are definitely was the case because no one from his youth was actually saying what happened at this time. And in any case, most of Christie's dilemmas were all internal. People saw him as a fairly ordinary, quiet young man. They didn't really know what was going on inside his psyche. And perhaps he didn't know explicitly either, but mm. these issues were inside, or so he said, and obviously caused great problems, not only for himself, but even more unfortunately for other people in later life. So I hope that helps a little bit, but perhaps mm. Lynn's and John have got comments as well. I was just going to add to that. We have to remember that Christie didn't become a serial killer overnight, as of course many of them don't like that. And also the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, he saw his grandfather dead as well. So that influenced Sutcliffe, we believe. Going back to Christie, I think people don't really realise it because it's not that talked about in all the films and stuff, but he did have a criminal past. And this is how a lot of these, you know, the serial killers emerge. They don't come from nowhere. They do have criminal past. And sometimes it can be, you know, from a very a youthful time when it's just larceny or burglary or, or theft or something. They're not having, you know, a driving license to, you know, traffic offences. And then it seems to escalate and grow with Christie. He also had charged for and, and did serve several months in prison for malicious wounding with a cricket bat. So, again, this is something which people don't really know that much about. They just seem to assume he just killed for sexual reasons and then and that's it. But no one kills out of a vacuum, do you know what I mean? There's obviously mm. things going on from a very young age, in my view, I believe mm. that. And so I think it's just worth, if you're really interested in this case, looking at Christie's background and looking at his previous criminal records. 
Yeah, I think, wasn't Peter Sutcliffe also a grave digger as well? Was there anything in Christie, was there any fascination with cemeteries or am I confusing my serial killers? Perhaps I am. Well, as Jonathan will tell you, can't remember whose book it was, Jonathan, you might be able to remember, it might be one of the Edo's books. Didn't his childhood home actually look out over the cemetery? It did and it does, yeah. I mean, he lived for a time in a house, well, two houses, in Chester Road, Halifax, where I've been to. Chester Road, I used to say, and just over the wall from this street is the cemetery. And it was said in Kennedy's book that someone who remembered Christie as a lad says that a group of lads, including Christie, liked to visit the cemetery. And apparently, if they could open graves and have a look at what was inside, they would do so. But to be fair to Christie, I think it has to be said that it wasn't just him who was doing it. His other friends were involved as well. It was a group of them doing it. There's a photograph, though, isn't it, in one of the books? And it's actually taken from within the house, I believe, that Christie lived in, looking at the back window, which actually looked right over the cemetery. Yeah, mm. that's right. It's in Ludwig Kennedy's book. It also shows chimney stacks in the background as well. I was yeah. just going to say that. Yeah, isn't that bizarre? Yeah, yeah. In Halifax and then obviously Rillington Place, there's a huge yeah. photo, there's a huge that's chimney cool. stack. Something I'd just like Go to on. add to just to reinforce what Lindsay just said about the importance of Christie's early crimes between 1921 and 1933. After 1933, he's not known to have committed any form of, of crime whatsoever for another 10 years. And it's my opinion that he did not have a long-term plan to kill people. I mean, I, as, as I put in, in my book, he became a serial killer almost by accident. He killed his first victim in a panic because he believed his wife and um, her brother were about to return home and he was having an affair with a young woman by the name of Ruth First and she was killed uh, then he later said that he greatly enjoyed the fact he said that she looked more beautiful in death than life so I think that was the tipping point in 1943 when he was aged 44. Again for people who may not know too much about the case there's six murders that we know he committed, and then there's two which we will get to later, which is really the crux of the mystery. But um, any of you, is there any decent evidence that he killed anyone else other than the people we know about? Are there any little clues there? Not that I'm aware of. Hmm. Yeah, there's a stony silence there from everybody, so I'll take, <laughs> I'll take that as a no. <laughs> I think the other thing about Christie, which only to my knowledge really becomes apparent in Jonathan's great book, it's not overly mentioned elsewhere, is the fact that he was clearly into photography in a big way. So we know he was a keen photographer from taking things in the backyard to street events for Rillington Place and other members of the street as well. He had this studio off the Marlborough Road where we know he used to take ladies. And so the pornography aspect, I think, is quite interesting, as well as the photography aspect. And again, this helps to build up the serial killer instincts and the, their sexual impulses and all sorts of things if they've already got that going on in their lives anyway. So yeah. I think if there are more victims, then they're possibly not at Rillington Place. They're possibly at some of his earlier addresses, maybe mm -hmm. Oxford Gardens, where he was before. And who knows, maybe if he killed anywhere where he had secret studios. Yeah, I mean, there's so many other possible scenarios but i mean would you agree that the chronology is very strange because let's say for argument's sake that he didn't do the evans murders then there's basically a nine year or let's say eight ethel christie obviously wasn't a sexual murder so really you're talking about nine years and then if he had done the evans murders it's still five years so Lindsay, is there any history of that with other serial killers i've never heard of such a long gap 
not so much particularly in English serial killers, but I, right. I'm not an expert on American, but I do know that I've spoken to people on Facebook pages about American serial killers, and sometimes mm. they've said over America, for some reason, they do have long gaps, which That's not strange. necessarily the, the famous ones in England don't particularly have. Yeah, um, yeah. So I do think there's been a myth, again, about that serial killers don't suddenly stop killing. That's actually now been debunked by a lot of psychologists, so that right. actually serial killers can stop if they have the will to, and the means and the motive to do so. So oh, I think the fact that there's, there's a gap, in the past we would have said, oh, there has to be more killings, but now with modern psychology moving away from that, especially in the States, I think it's possible that maybe Ruth was his first, and as um, Jonathan says, you know, through almost accident. And as we know, when he wasn't expecting what happened to Ruth's body as she died, as in what happened, to all dead bodies and is not very pleasant with certain bodily fluids coming out he wasn't prepared for that but certainly after that killing and then the preparation he did for the future ones he he made them all specific type of diapers he wrapped around the bodies so he knew what was coming clearly i don't think he knew what was coming with ruth so i would say ruth possibly was his first victim and then um like i said we don't know for sure about the evans murders but the end of 1952, he basically suddenly threw up his job in December and then killed his wife and then seemed to have these urges. I mean, I think we'd all presume that he killed his wife to get her out of the way so he could satisfy these urges. But again, I'm only guessing, but I don't think there's any evidence that he knew that was coming. You know, who knows when these urges, you know, we're not in the mind of a serial killer. It's so difficult to know, isn't it? Well, I've been having a reread of one of the books on the case earlier today, and it seems that throughout 1952, Christie was having mental health problems. He did visit Dr. Petit and did, did visit other doctors, and he was trying to bring young women back to the house. But of course, Ethel wouldn't leave him alone with them. So I think he was suffering, certainly throughout most of 1952, but he was also visiting other young women in cafes in uh, Hammersmith, etc. So I think okay. he was wanting to kill again in 1952. The urges had returned. So I don't think throwing in the job in, in December was a sudden thing. I think okay. he'd been building up to it. And only one person stood in the way of what he wanted to do, hmm. regrettably. And of course, that was Ethel. I think he clearly had a sexual appetite with all the pornography going on and the photography, even though we don't know that much about that. That's still happening throughout that whole period, for all we know. But then maybe he found the ultimate release, the ultimate sexual pinnacle at the moment of killing and then, you know, possibly sleeping with them. I mean, there's evidence for and against whether Christie was a necrophile, to be honest. I think maybe he found his one way of actually climaxing very well mm. during the strangulation process as they're actually dying. Just a very short aside, I okay. think it's worth mentioning that in October 1952, one of the women who he, he's involved in his photography sessions is Kathleen Maloney, who becomes one of his later victims. So uh, just a, a short aside. Yes, yes, that's right. So we mentioned Ethel. The big question, of course, that people have been puzzling over for years is what did Ethel know or not know? I know it's a big question. There's a lot of different uh, strands to it. So can we start with John with this one? What do you believe that Ethel Christie knew about what was happening with the Evans cases, or, or I guess earlier than that? They were very close in the sense of physical environment. Mm. You know, a lot of couples manage these days, one hears, because they live in such a big house that they never have to meet other than for mealtimes. That wasn't the situation with the Christies, and they were, they were sort of together 
all the time. And Ethel was far from the dimwit that she's been depicted as by Kennedy and others throughout the literature. Very small house, no privacy. These are not self-contained flats. This is just a small, jerry-built house with umpteen people coming and going and living. She was also loyal to her husband, possibly because of her nature, but also because that's the way things were done more in those days. It's very difficult to accept that she was completely unaware of any of it, but also... It's hard, isn't it, John, because if you read the trial transcripts, she comes across as very genuine and and the police seem to trust her as well, to be fair. And and yet, us today with our suspicious minds, we're like, she must have known something, she must have known something. Mm. But when you read the trial transcripts, she come across as completely innocent. But I do think the dependency that women and wives had upon husbands in those days and the difference... They weren't partnerships like they are nowadays. And I think probably self-preservation, loyalty, but also probably a bit of denial, you know, sort of almost partitioning off that bit of her thinking because, you know, she just didn't want to go there because of the consequences. Would you want to start going down a rabbit hole that would ultimately lead to your husband being hanged for murder? I think we perhaps ought to mention the young lady called Joan or Pat Howard. Basically, she lived in Timington Place for a few months in about 1950 or 51. Yeah, I was going to say. makes two statements. One of them is to the police, which is fairly brief, and she says that Ethel said to her that she knew something about her husband but wouldn't be precise as to what it was. It could be anything, really. But then in the newspapers, 1953, after Christie's been exposed as a murderer, she's more effusive, and she then says, oh, well, yeah, he knows a lot about what happened to the Evanses and so forth. And which version is correct, it's impossible to say, but I imagine the first is probably more like than the second. Right. And yeah. didn't I read, Jonathan, didn't, I think I may have read somewhere in your book that Christie did a proposition to one of the girls in front of Ethel. Was that in your book? Well, Christy did invite a young woman back to Tenwington Place, ostensibly to watch the fireworks in November, presumably 51 or maybe 52. And Ethel's expected to go into the kitchen to obviously prepare dinner, but she didn't. And it, it was, I can't remember who said it, but, but obviously the reason why she didn't was because she didn't want her husband to get too friendly with this sort of young woman. Speaking as a woman in our in our lovely little male group here, <laughs> women women women's instincts are pretty good, guys. So mm. even if she didn't know specifics, mm. you'd know that your husband was always looking at other women. Is mm. out going to pubs, even though he always maintained he never drank, never went into a pub in his life. No. How awful! It's such a mm. rubbish. She's not stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally understand. The other thing I wanted to clear up or wanted to ask you i'm sure you've all seen there's there's a number of youtube videos about rillington place and they come up all the time and uh you know the video where you can actually the camera goes into the house you know we've seen the wash house we've seen everything there was even a video of michael parkinson in front of the house talking about the case it was on the bbc on this day website and now it's gone i never found it do we know when that footage came from 
is this the footage where the guy actually you go through the house but there's an actually a man it's a silent film but yes. the man actually takes you around all the rooms and that yeah that's is right this yeah. the same one yeah that's michael so. eddowes because he he was the owner he was the last owner and it was actually for a welsh news program uh, that makes sense because there's a video which is silent and then the last 30 seconds is an interview with uh, Evans's cousin, yeah. brother. Yes. Cousin, yeah. That, oh, that clears it up. Right, right. Yeah, and it's because mm. Michael was the last owner of the house. So that's obviously he had full access before they demolished it. I mean, it's so bizarre to actually have footage inside this house and be able to see like the actual dimensions of it. Although yeah. it, it had changed slightly, to be fair, by mm. 1969, when they when they said that was being filmed. Ferriston Brown had changed some of the layout in the kitchen a little bit, if you actually look at some of the pictures. So it wasn't exactly as it was, mm. but it was 90% very similar. And actually, yeah. if you look at the garden and the subsequent photographs before they demolished it, the amount of junk and rubbish that I was know. in that garden is hideous. You know, yeah. years after the Christie's left, when Ferriston uh, Brown and, and Charlie Brown and that were occupied it later on as well. Yeah, I've seen that footage. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a right mess, isn't it? Such a tiny garden as well. I think garden is a sort of um, polite word for it, really, isn't it? I mean, it's so tiny. That's um, it. <laughs> so yeah. All right, let's get on to one of our favourite topics, the Ludovic Kennedy book of 1961, otherwise known as the standard version. Now, what's very interesting with this is that if you take um, – Jonathan and I used to go on this forum called the Christie Case – and we gave up basically because the, the conversation just went round and round in circles and it, and it ended up as all these things as a, as a kind of tribal, no, Christie did it, Evans did it, and all these, you know, these passionate sort of um, arguments about it. But it's interesting because what's now the standard version is the one that makes the police look bad, of course, a miscarriage of justice. And anyone now who says that Evans did do it is now kind of the conspiracy theorist. Whereas in normal cases, it's the it's the version that makes the authorities look bad that is the conspiracy theory, <laughs> you know. And you're a lunatic if you think that. But now this is a weird one because it's the other way around, you know. So anyway, so I I read the Ludovic Kennedy book probably around 2000 2001, and I mean I was very taken in by it. It's a very persuasive book, you know. It, it appears to have good evidence, but. Um, Again, I mean, we could probably do an hour on this alone. So uh, if we could just be brief, let's go around again. So maybe, Jonathan, what are the main problems with the Ludovic Kennedy book, let's say? Right. Well, very briefly, <laughs> right. um, everyone who doesn't know that this is not an impartial historical account. It is a heavily biased account. Mm. As Ludovic Kennedy himself claims, he says, I wrote it to make the case for Evans. And um, one of the officials who he was looking at documents with later said that any piece of evidence which pointed to Evans's guilt Kennedy was not interested in it so basically that's the main problem I mean the other problem is of course is that there's loads of historical inaccuracies some important some perhaps less important to the thesis of the book but um, as long as people know that that it is the case for the defense of Timothy Evans mm. then that's reasonable yeah all right, I've got a few things to say, but I'll let Lindsay and John go first. So who would like to comment next? I just think there's just so many historical inaccuracies, like Jonathan said, on, on my new show, really. And it's, and it's mm. the little details which, which are important, maybe not to the general Joe blogs, if you like, but to historians. Mm. They are really crucial because you have to wonder, well, if he's getting the small facts wrong, how is he getting the big facts wrong, you know? I have to say in his defence, the one good thing about that book I enjoyed is photographs. 
some of his images were quite good and innovative. So, you know, there's good and bad points of all books. But on the whole, he definitely had an agenda. And it's important if you don't know the case and you want to read around it, just remember that when you're reading it. Most books always have an agenda anyway. They're politically biased. But sure. his book became so influential. It's a bit like the Stephen Knight book in the Jack the Ripper case. So now anybody going, you know, against it is often classified as crazy, like you said. Whereas, in fact, the evidence is pretty amazing, especially, you know, Peter Thorley looks at it. We'll talk about it later. But mm. just, yeah, just to sort of warn people who are going to read things for the first time, maybe after hearing our podcast, yeah. just be wary that everything has an agenda behind it and really look into Ludovic Kennedy's background as well, because he's an, you know, he's an interesting chap. Yes. Go on, John, you go. And then I'll try. Well, and yeah. Yeah. All of that is completely true. I think probably 90% of people who know anything about the Rillington Place case cases started with Kennedy's book. I know I did. Someone lent it to me in the 80s, and I read it. I recollect that I didn't finish it because I thought it was pretty turgid. But that wasn't to say that I disbelieved or had any reason to think that it was, um, as Jonathan said, you know, Kennedy openly said that he wrote the book to make the case against Christie. And so, uh, you know, there's the answer and everything was reverse engineered from then on. And on a slightly wider point, you know, this is one of a very few examples where, you know, I inevitably know more about the subject than average and you look at something like Kennedy's book that has become the standard version and the film was based upon it, it's very tempting to think, well, if if everything is as wrong as this one is, you know, how much... This probably isn't the only example of, of where something is completely misleading and has done a, an irreparable job. I mean, there's no way, that, you know, the, the world at large is ever now going to accept that, no, it wasn't, you know, how the popular mythology tells us it was. In any way it would change, John, is if mm. somebody makes a film of Peter Thorley's book. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that later, because as I said, Jonathan, Jonathan and I actually did an audio commentary for the Temerington Place film, which is on YouTube. And Jonathan, actually, in the last week, I put it in podcast form, because I have a film podcast. So I'll put all the links on this video anyway. But I remember at the time, this was about 2013, I think we did that, we were saying, why doesn't someone make a drama which presents, let's say, possibility A and possibility B? And, of course, the BBC did do a drama, which we'll get to later. They didn't quite heed that advice. Anyway, yeah, I've got a few things to say. With the Kennedy book, it's always interesting when you can actually see errors and know it for a fact. And one of the ones was in Kennedy's thesis, Christie killed Beryl on the 8th of November and went to the doctor's. And Kennedy states that it would be possible to get to the doctors in Colville Square, see the doctor if you saw him quickly, and get back in 20 minutes or 25 minutes. And because I live there, I actually thought, well, I'm going to test this out. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, it's probably 25 minutes there and back, not including seeing the doctor. I mean, okay, he may have been running, whatever. But the other one... With his bad back. (laughs) With his bad back, yeah. The other ones were, obviously, there's a picture taken in the garden, which may have been taken by Christie. As you said, Lindsay, you had an interest in photography. And Kennedy's got the names of Evans's, one of Evans's sisters and Beryl mixed up. Now, someone has said, this is not my opinion, but has said that the, Evans's sister looks more glamorous than Beryl. But I think the main point is that in the paperback editions, that error wasn't corrected. I think I'm right in saying that. 
And then the other one was, he said, um, I think, Jonathan, it was actually Kennedy who first mentioned the doll's house. I know that was in Rupert Furno's book. I think it's Kennedy. Anyway, Kennedy actually said that you could fall from the top window of Rillington Place without hurting yourself. Now, I know Rillington Place is a small house, but you know the famous picture of the two policemen outside? You could see that the policemen, who are probably, let's say, six foot, are around the same height as the door. I mean, there's no way you could, you wouldn't fall from the top window and not do yourself an injury. So just, as you said, little things like that. And then the other one was when, when Evans came back from Wales and they showed him, they said, uh, we found the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine. And Evans said, yes. And in Kennedy's book, he says, oh, oh, Evans said, yes. Evans was befuddled. Evans was confused. That yes could have meant anything, you know. Yes could have meant no, you know. I remember even, you know, as I said, when I first read it, I was fairly taken in because it's a very persuasive and well-written book. But, you know, there were it was even a red flag then. But... um do you want to say something? I'm going to say that I make no comment myself, but there are those who are sufficiently uncharitable to suggest that Kennedy's motive in writing the book was he needed something to uh, give his ailing career a boost, and, mm-hmm. and something nice and controversial was what he chose. And, it, you know, this wasn't a great crusade for justice. It was just something to get him, you know, back into the public eye a bit. And, you know, Far Jove succeeded if that was the intention. Mm. See, I've, I've also read somewhere that he was on a crusade against capital punishment and so really chose this case for that reason to try and get a pardon for Evans. So mm. they could still have the private motivation you mentioned, but I think, to be fair to him, I think he did have quite a passion against capital punishment. I haven't got a copy myself, but I've read sections of the latest biography of Kennedy. That's quite oh. worth getting hold of, which came out only a couple of years ago. He knew everybody. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure he, he had words in various politicians' ears, and that book definitely, although people have said, you know, it didn't actually, we should establish, it didn't actually lead to the abolition of capital punishment, because there's a few myths around that as well. So yes. you could definitely categorically state that's not the case. But... I'm sure the whole case were in people's minds as well as Ruth Ellis and everything else happening a bit later on. Mm. So it didn't cause it, but I'm sure it was influential. Of course, the incredible thing that, again, I think people miss this, the judgment that got Evans his uh, apparent pardon actually found that he probably killed his wife and probably didn't kill his daughter. And because he'd been tried for the killing of his daughter, that's why mm. he was uh, pardoned, but he's, he's not. I mean, I think there was something happened in 2004. Perhaps you can tell me about that. There was another review, but that's an interesting thing. But I was just saying, it's interesting, mm. you know, that the first review definitely believed Evans had killed his wife and his child. It was only on the yeah. second review when things started to change, and I think that's a, possibly due to politics more than anything. Yeah, I mean, every now and again, you know, as I said, I do look at YouTube for Tamarillington Place videos, and... I always click on them for about 10 seconds to see if anyone's saying anything new, and it's always miscarriage of justice. Don't forget watching the, uh, which I, I mentioned yesterday, watching the, the sketch show for the two Ronnies, for the <laughs> Phantom ras- Raspberry Blower of Old London Town. The original 30-minute version, the very last scene, is filmed right outside number 10 before it was shortly demolished. Yeah. And you can actually see the physical sewer drain. It was one of the three drains they'd actually searched looking for Beryl's body. So that's amazing. Incredible. I've never seen 
down that sewer or what the sewer looked like because on sketches there's one drain in the back garden there was a drain right underneath the physical windowsill and an actual gutter drain i didn't even know there was a manhole cover physically in the road so to wow. physically see that on the video and to look down it going oh my gosh that's the actual manhole I was just going to say something very briefly about the comments that have been made, not about the drains, which um, are very interesting, but as, as Mr. Nilsson once observed, since when have the police been interested in the contents of drains? Sorry, that's an aside. So, um, to get back to Kennedy's book, there's been some mention of it about capital punishment. Well, he says at the beginning of the book, it is not primarily an attack on capital punishment. Although anyone reading it might think the opposite. The other observation which I think John made about someone saying that Kennedy only wrote it to get kudos, publicity, etc, etc. One man who did make the observation in print in 1965 was a convicted murderer in a Swiss prison called Mr Donald Hume. Yes. He wrote a very angry letter to the Brabin inquiry to say, I know Kennedy to be a fake and a pseudo and yeah. such like. He's only writing it to, to get a bit of publicity out of it so he certainly said that very interesting all right am i right in thinking there were three books that came out in 61 so there was rupert ferno in fact i was just looking at that today he, he had an interesting theory i mean i didn't read the whole book i just read the last couple of chapters he was quite open but his theory which just sounded very speculative was that christie had arranged to do an abortion on bear Evans, and the scenario actually played out similarly that it does in the film so you've got the workman there but that, let me get this right, Joan Vincent had come, had tried to get in and had felt that someone was um, keeping her out. And then Beryl had got cold feet, so they'd cancelled the abortion. And then Evans came home, had a row with his wife and strangled Beryl, which was uh, fairly bizarre. But then uh, Ferno's final conclusion was that Evans had killed Beryl, but that Christie had killed uh, Geraldine. So <laughs> I think really what we're talking about is, I suppose there's three scenarios where the Evans did the murders and Christie had nothing to do with them. Christie did them and had manipulated Evans or that both of them may have been involved. But leaving that aside for a sec, are there any other books of that time that anyone, let's say pre-Jonathan's book, which ones would you recommend or yeah. would you say have some value? Book, uh, Anthony, you just said that there were three books in 1961. Obviously, Kennedy, in which Evans is innocent. Ferner, in which Evans killed his wife and Chris killed the daughter. But it's also a novelization. Mm. Now, most novels of true crimes usually are pretty bad. But this one, in my opinion, is actually quite good. It's fairly well imagined. Obviously, it has to imagine. But it sticks reasonably to the known facts. And that conclusion is different to the other two. It mm. concludes that Evans was guilty of both murders. And that is the third book, but the least well-known. There is another novelization of the case called A Capital Crime in 2007, which I have to say is a bit of a disappointment, but there we are. Any other books? The Hard to Find one uh, by Ronald Maxwell is, is yeah. really, really good. The images in that are really good as well, because a lot of them we hadn't seen before. And, and Jonathan, you used a lot in your book, didn't you? And, and plus the original dust jacket, if you because Jonathan, you haven't got a dust jacket on yours. No. Have you seen? Have you seen it? It's amazing. It's like a cartoon of Christie as a horror person with his hands like this and all the dismembered heads at the bottom oh, of his victims outside the into place. It's amazing. You have a look on Wikipedia. I, I want it just for the dust jacket, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, so the books we just mentioned, so the Ronald Maxwell was a Christie case, which came out in 53. The novelist one was John Newton Chance, that was 61. Now, other ones that people may be interested in, again, unfortunately, we, have, we won't be able to go into all of them, but there's the Francis Camps one, which is the forensic aspect, and then um, F. Tennyson Jesse, which is a, a write-up of the trial, word <laughs> for word. Actually, that's not true. Let me just explain okay, that. None of the trial books are word for word. Okay. They're about 95%, but actually okay. there's stuff that Jesse missed out, which other authors have picked up on. So one day I'm going to go up there to the archives and actually look at the original transcript to see exactly uh, okay. what bit she missed out. All right. Okay. Of course, there was another one in 1955, which was Michael Edo's The Man in Your Conscience. So this was the first one to come out, which was arguing the case that Evans may have been innocent. Now, bizarrely, as if this case needed any more bizarre details, his son then wrote a book called The Two Killers of Rillington Place. Now, this one apparently had some kudos because certain files were opened in the 90s and he'd had access to these. But uh, Jonathan, you're itching to talk about this book, I'm sure. So uh, you go ahead. John Edo's book, The Two Killers of Rillington Place, was the first significant book on the case for three decades, published in 1993, so 32 mm. years after the alleged standard version by Ludovic Kennedy. He strongly argues that Timothy Evans was basically a wife-beater, he was a drunkard, he was vicious, and he was a murderer of both his wife, Beryl, and his daughter, the 13-month-old Geraldine Evans. The first half of the book is a narrative of the case. The second half of the book is basically an attack on the standard version by Ludovic Kennedy, which goes almost page by page through Kennedy's book, pointing out everything which is wrong in it and why it is wrong and how Kennedy pulled the wool over people's eyes deliberately. Mm. It was a very controversial book. Lots of people don't like it and they say, how dare Eddowes say this? He's a friend to all the hangers and floggers out there. He's got everything wrong. However, I would say that no one has written a book which takes apart John Eddowes' arguments. There have been a few books after 1993 which have told everybody that Evans is innocent, but they haven't forensically and properly gone through Eddowes' arguments, if that is at all possible. No one's ever attempted to say why he's got things wrong. People say, oh, well, it's terrible what he's written, but they don't actually go into any detail as to why. So it hasn't been dismantled, is what you're saying? No, not Yeah, all. that's right. I mean, I haven't read that book for years, but do you feel like maybe he was almost using a device, which is, as you said, Jonathan, everything you thought you knew was wrong? Like the videos you see online, the truth about. Anyone else want to chime in? What's your, what's your opinion of the Edos? But I mean, I would say in my book, I think it, it is a bit unfortunate that the John Edos book rather steals its own thunder, in a sense, in that it sort of becomes such an ad hominem attack on Kennedy, it sort of detracts from what he's really getting at, which is the fact that the case has been misrepresented, so he says, um, in the Kennedy book. And I think it would have had perhaps more acceptance, more traction, had it been a bit more measured and a bit less of a sort of slag off of Kennedy himself. It sort of reduced its own weight in in that sense. And it's pity because it was a, the first thing, as, as has already been said, to swim against the tide of the, the standard version. Quite why Eddowes took 
that view that he did. I, I don't know enough to, to understand why he took the opposite view of his father and, and was so convinced of um, Evans's guilt. But nevertheless, it was a, it's a very important book in the whole story, and it's just a shame that it, it's not regarded with the same weight as, as Kennedy's. You have to remember, though, John did his book, he published it in 1994. His mm. title was The Two Killers of Rillington Place. That's very similar, don't forget, to the 1961 book by Rupert, The Two Stranglers mm. of Rillington Place. There's clearly a direct reference mm. to Rupert's work in his own title. Personally, in my view, I think John's book is very, very probably close to the mark as to what actually happened, but that's just my personal view. Again, like John said, it's a bit of a shame he went on a personal vendetta against Kennedy, as he still does to this very day, because we all found out, didn't we, lads? And you were wondering about why he was so against what his father was written. It's more of a personal story, because he absolutely hated his father, sadly, for lots of different reasons. He believed his father had mental health problems and was completely crazy. This is quite important if you get to understand who John is and why John wrote his book. There's a private and personal element to John's work, which people won't be aware of. And maybe that's good, bad or ugly. It doesn't matter. But we are aware of it, us three, having had lunch with the man. I spoke to him on the phone once. and uh, Yeah. Let's just say he was fairly convinced of his (laughs) his own. Yeah, but I think the story and and the fact that he was able to use the files, I can't think of any specifics at the top of my head, Mm. which were like, I mean, I quickly reread the book the other day and there's some fantastic points in it. You know, he questions a lot of things, which is what we want as historians. We Mm. want to question things all the time. Even if the truth's already been said, you should still question it because there's always new elements and new things coming out, especially with when the archives are released or the documents mm. were released. Even I haven't seen all of those, but as soon as I do get chance, I'm going to make that a priority. I'm going to go photograph all three boxes. I don't know whether you lads have done that already. Have you got copies of every single Christie file? No, no, no. no. Not the full, okay. full Monty by any means, no. Because now you don't have to do photocopies and spend hours at a photocopy machine. You can just take them on your phone. It's so quick to go through a whole box of stuff. I went through about 10 boxes of craze files a few years ago, and that was, uh-huh. you know, just one afternoon. So you can do things a lot quicker now. We've got mobile phones with fantastic yeah. pictures. <laughs> so nice. you know what, guys? I think there's still more stuff to come out from those files. I mean, Jonathan, even though you've probably read them all, we don't digest everything. I'm sure you didn't keep notes of every single thing you found. Mm. And certainly put a lot of it probably in your book so i still think there's more facts there's more stories and there's more statements from lots of other potential victims or women who like you did mention in your book jonathan how all these different women they must have given statements to say oh well i met him in a cafe i met him Mm. in a cafe i saw him and you know and the more the pornography angle as well so i think there's still more stuff to come out from the national archives I mean, one file which I have to put my hand on my heart and say I have not read every single page of it is, because it's about 30 boxes, is the entire paperwork concerned with the Brabian inquiry, which, as we know, took place over several weeks. I have Mm. been through parts of it. I was highlighting parts of it because it was summarising the times. I was going through particular witnesses. But I have to say I haven't been through it page by page by page. Obviously, I I should do. But it will Mm. take anyone who does it a massive amount of education and however interested you are in it i think it's a lot to go through in one sitting and you probably couldn't get through 24 yeah. boxes 
or whatever it is anywhere. I think mm. I'm underestimating. I think it's more than 24 boxes. But that's just a browbing inquiry, let alone the Home Terrible. Office stuff, the DPP yeah. stuff, the Evans case stuff, and plus also the file, which I'm sure that everyone should take a copy of. It's the file where Christian makes his notes for his autobiographical writings, which isn't quite the same as actually appeared in the pictorial at the end of the day. There are oh. some differences, and there are things in it which did not make the newspaper. I try to incorporate as much as that in the book anyway. Wow. The big job. Yeah, still more to know for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm.